I think the probably the best thing is know your market, know exactly who your target market is. I mean, don't think you can open your doors and wait and see who walks in. Hello, folks, and welcome to episode two. Thanks to everyone who listened to last week's show when I talked to Barbara Cuthbert from Bike Auckland about everything to do with what she's doing uh, as a non-profit, uh, a charity. It was great to get your feedback as well. Um, if you want to reach out and send me any uh, updates of what you think of the show, just get in touch with me via my Instagram or go onto the website and follow that there. And also I want to mention, if you do follow me on Instagram, uh, you might know that I've been in Auckland for quite a while. Uh, and next week, I'm going to be taking myself, my camper van, couple of bikes and heading down to Wellington which is the southern city uh, of the North Island in New Zealand. I'm going to take a slow way down uh, hitting places like Rotorua, uh, Taupo, uh, doing some hiking, riding, uh, maybe even some bikepacking as well. If you know these areas, have any advice, uh, people to talk to on the way down and places to ride, just hit me up uh, via my Instagram or if you want to follow the story really you can do that as well uh, on my Instagram which is at Pedaling Podcast. So let's get on with the show. So today I'm talking with Alistair Worrell. Uh, Worrells is a, a bike distribution business. They've been around for over 100 years. They've been working with people like Campagnola since the 1950s. So one of the big reasons why I wanted to talk to Alistair and find out more about Worrells is because of the age of the business. It's been around for over 100 years. It's a family-run business as well. They've seen products come and go. They've seen businesses come and go. So I really wanted to talk to Alistair about the business itself. Distribution is a part of the industry which we just don't really know about. When I talked to Barbara last week, I told her I was talking to Alistair this week and she had no idea who he was, who the business was, and because it's a completely different part of the cycling industry. So if you're interested in knowing more about the cycling industry, especially from the distribution side, stick around, listen to the show because we talk about China, big players like Chain Reaction Cycles and Wiggle, advice on starting up a business in the cycling industry, and running a family business that's been around for over 100 years. Hello Alistair and welcome to the show. Um, I'm going to jump straight in and ask you a direct question about distribution. Now, if someone doesn't know about it, where does it kind of sit within the whole industry of cycling? Well, I guess we're, the short answer is we're in the middle between the, the manufacturer uh, and the the bike shop. So the consumer will buy from the retailer, obviously. The retailer will purchase from us. So in the case of lights, we're the distributor for Black, Blackburn Lights, and we would buy those uh, directly from the factories in China. The factories in China are manufacturers. The brand holder is, is Blackburn, and they're based in California. So the, the supply chain is somewhat complicated. So we perform the task of of essentially bringing in large shipments and and um, delivering them to retailers in, in manageable sizes for them. So I'm going to jump back, way, way, way back to kind of the beginning of the business. Um, and when Wobbles first started out, it had nothing to do with cycling, right? That's correct, yeah. In 1901, we didn't have anything to do with bicycles. No, we were, um, we were general merchants, if you like, importers. There was very little manufacturing, if any, in New Zealand at that time. So uh, most household goods were, were imported by somebody like ourselves. Um, they tended to specialise uh, more in household goods, furniture, crockery, that type of thing. 
So one of the brands that you represent, which stands out massively is Campagnolo, which you've been distributing since like the 1950s. Is that right? Uh, look, I'm not 100% sure when we started, but I think it was a, it was pretty close to straight after the war. Um, I, I'm really not 100% sure on the exact start date of that, but it, it was um, certainly before 1950. Okay, so like 1950s to now, 50, 60, 70 years of business that you've been working with. From your point of view, kind of what has really changed within that business? Obviously, the products have evolved, but um, from a from a distribution point of view, how have you seen them change? Uh, short answer is a little bit of yes and no. There, the the company is throughout the time that I've been involved, which is from the mid nineties till till now. Uh, the company has been owned by Valentino Campagnolo, who is the son of Tullio Campagnolo, who who was the founder of the company. So Valentino has been running it. Um, he's the uh, CEO, general manager. I'm not sure what the Italian term is for the head honcho, but uh, um, he he does most of his manufacturing in Italy. Uh, in the last, I think around about the around about the turn of the millennium, they opened a factory in Romania, uh, which is. I think only a matter of three or four or five hours drive from their factory in Vicenza in northern Italy. So they have two factories now, um, Romania and Vicenza in Italy. Some of their wheels are now actually manufactured in Asia um, as well. To be main reason for that is to be uh, is cost, but the second reason is also to be close to the bike assembly factories okay. in Taiwan mainly. So when it comes to bringing a product to New Zealand, um, for example, Blackburn, which is the the bikepacking people, what's the typical process? Can you give me an example of like how you kind of take them from where they are in America and bring them to New Zealand and what the kind of relationship is between you and them? Uh, well, we we have Blackburn are the people we mostly deal with. They're the people in you know, the brand holder. They're the people that develop the products, market the products. Um, the process of dealing with the factories in China is largely a um, an administrative um, function, really, which is based around just simply getting the product to New Zealand. Um, all the clever stuff is done with the brand holder, which is which are the folks at Blackburn and uh, based in Santa Cruz, California. So with them, we would we'd negotiate uh, the usual business terms of volumes and prices and expectations like that. But also, they they help us with marketing initiatives and what the sort of things that we would uh, use them for would be to, to help promote the brand in New Zealand and market it here and, and make it relevant to Kiwis. So how do you go about deciding on a product in the first place or a brand to, to bring here? Is there some sort of demand or a magic formula for working that out? Uh, I guess that that's, in terms of Blackburn in particular, that, that, that brand is a very, it's quite an old established brand. Um, we became the distributor with that one when, uh, the parent company of Blackburn also owned Bell Helmets and they merged with the company that owned Giro Helmets and we were the Giro distributor and at that point in time uh, the new company decided that we were their best option to distribute all their products in New Zealand. Okay, so let's jump into marketing. So you've got this product, you know what it is, you're bringing it into the to New Zealand how do you go about deciding how it's marketed? You know, is the brand doing that? Are you doing that? Where does the money kind of exist between the two people? Uh, and what are the expectations like? Well, I guess first thing with, with marketing for a brand, these days 
brand marketing tends to be quite international. The internet has, has made made the world uh, more connected, and their initiative, their global initiatives, are often seen by New Zealand consumers through um, all manner of uh, all manner of internet, you know, uh, websites, um, blogs. Um, they do a lot of sponsorship with their Blackburn Ranger program, for example. A lot of those guys are writing blogs, probably pretty similar to what you're going to do when you uh, when you head north. Um, what we want localized is with any brand you want to be able to make it relevant to local people here and that. So we do try to get some assistance from Blackburn in the US with those activities. That might be uh, simply we need product. Um, we also, marketing materials, there's not really much point in us developing a whole lot of marketing materials that they've already got in the US. Um, that may be print print or web-based material. Um, they run a, a program called the Ranger Program over there, which is a um, essentially sponsor three or four high-profile um, bike packing um, riders who, who, who have some interesting adventures ahead of them. Blackburn are a big supplier of uh, bikepacking bags and, and so forth. So, so those, it's I guess it's sponsorship in a way, but it's um, it's a sponsorship unlike the traditional form of sponsoring a guy who's riding the Tour de France. It's a product use. I guess that it means the the brand is responsible for all the marketing, all the sponsorship, and whatever channel they want to use to promote what they do. And would it be fair to say that your role then is to make sure that that product is being distributed nationally to the retailer, to customers uh, as quickly and on time as they can? Yeah, that we, yeah, we, we have a sales function, which is, is simply as you described, to get the product to the, to the retailers. But there's always a expectation from a brand that we will market locally, whether that's at a grassroots level or you know, magazine advertising sponsorship of profile athletes in New Zealand um, so there is a degree of making a global brand local and we always have to try that's that, that's the trick that we need to pull off so when we were talking off air earlier you described um, something you've got going on next week which is people coming in to look at new products uh, talk about sales talk about other other things going on here is that another part of your marketing and, and how does that play a role in what you kind of do it's that's probably pure sales, to be honest. Um, in a way, it's marketing to the dealers, um, but it's it's a sales program. Um, we have dealers from around the country who come in here, basically spread over about a month, and we usually have them coming in in ones and twos, and we personally walk them through our different product ranges that we offer, and we show them the new products and uh, our sales programs, our sales incentives for them, and really, it's our chance to put our best foot forward and try and get our product ranges in their stores probably at the expense of uh, some of our competitors right so you have a product how do you define uh, a successful launch of a product um how do you measure it and and do you have like an example of a product launch that's gone amazingly well um and any that that haven't gone so well uh well i guess the most recent product launch we've done which i think has been quite successful is, is the latest helmet from Giro. It's called the Ether. It's a new high-end road helmet. It's a very, very sophisticated product. It's it's a new technical, there's got some very new technical features that we haven't seen in helmets before. Um, that one's been very successful because it was launched at the Tour de France with the BMC team. 
in early July, and we were able to deliver product uh, very you know within four to five weeks of that. Although we don't have very the quantity we have is very limited, uh, being able to follow a global launch locally, um, so in such a short space of time is really good. You talk about unsuccessful ones, and and where it can be really unsuccessful is when consumers in New Zealand can see a launch globally, but they can't get the product here for six, eight, ten months. That sort of thing can be really frustrating. Um, often consumers get, uh, well, they think that we as a distributor are doing a bad job because we're we're behind the behind the eight ball. But it's just often that's not the case. It's often our our suppliers are uh, getting very enthusiastic and and launching a product before. Uh, before they can supply the product. That happens in the bike trade all the time. It's one of my great frustrations, to be honest, is um, not being able to deliver product to consumers when they're enthusiastic about seeing it on uh, for the first time. And what is that usually down to? Uh, the supply chain is quite long. Um, the marketing departments and the logistics departments in some companies are not as well connected as they could be or should be. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, largely often, often we're not able to order a product until after it's been launched and from the time of ordering to time of delivery in New Zealand could easily be three to six months, depending on the product and the factory lead time. I mean, if you just consider shipping alone, it's around about four weeks from the factory door to my warehouse shipping from Asia. Um, if it's shipping from Europe, it's on the water for at least 35 days, and that doesn't include all the transit time uh, to and from the ports. So we're a long way from the center of the world. So I want to ask a kind of a naive question, really, um, and this is purely from my perspective uh, on what I kind of see in the industry at the moment. In the UK, one of the biggest I guess distributors um, is is Wiggle, um, Chain Reaction as well. I mean, they're both the same company now. Is that kind of a, a threat to the business um, as we see? Because I guess what they're doing at Wiggle is they they have the warehouse full of stuff, but they're also distributing straight to the customer. Whereas what you do is 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 only one part of that. Um, is that like a a typical threat to your kind of business? Yeah, look, everything you say there, John, is correct. I mean, Wiggle and Chain Reaction, the two people you mentioned, are now the same company, actually. The two, one bought the other quite recently. In fact, they also bought uh, Bike24 in Germany, who are one of the big German outfits. So, uh, yeah, those guys are getting bigger. And uh, in that process, they're consolidating. They're a real threat to the business, to our business, yeah, because they can offer uh, a huge range of products. They can, um, they can offer pricing sometimes that is extremely uh, competitive and and that um, that's direct to our consumer so yeah certainly that cuts us out of out of the supply chain and uh, it it is a big threat to our business some of our suppliers are much better at um, at working with those those companies so that they're not um, taking a predatory pricing approach to to their non-eu customers which is something that they often do and it's so yeah that that, that sort of a, that sort of business approach is, is quite threatening for us um so i want to ask about price matching now the reason they ask it because a friend of mine a bit of a plug m plus one bike shop in brighton um told me how he doesn't 
stock anything. There's no point because one, he has to have the space for it, buy a lot of stuff, it doesn't sell, then you kind of hold on to it. So what he actually does is just pop down the road to the local Evan Cycles um, and price match based on Wiggles price, which is online, uh, and get a really good price, doesn't stock, gets his bike fixed in the same day. Um, does that kind of activity actually uh, damage what you're doing, you know, as a company that needs to move stock from your warehouse to somewhere else to be able to get a retailer to sell it? Um, but the whole price matching thing can mean that people don't really need to stock a lot of stuff, as that example kind of illustrates. No, it does. It does. Similar activities are occurring in New Zealand. Um, a lot of dealers will try to price match websites. Um and also the level of inventory a lot of them carry is lower than uh, than it used to be. Um, and because they're not carrying the inventory, they don't have the inventory risk, they can they can take a smaller margin sometimes and, uh, and they can be more flexible on price matching. What we're also doing is we will often ship directly to the dealer's, the dealer's customer or direct to the consumer. So in other words, the consumer can transact with the dealer uh, for something they don't have in stock and we'll ship it directly to their house or their place of work. So um, we're acting in a similar manner here. Um, and I think that's going to be something that we, that, that side of our business is growing all the time and I think it'll be a big part of our future. So I want to jump onto the subject of um, drop shipping. Now, probably many people haven't heard about what it is and what it means, um, but can you explain kind of what it is from your perspective and, and what advantage it has to, to your business and, and everyone else? Well, dropshipping is is basically exactly what I just how I was describing before, where we would the, the dealer will take the order from the consumer, and then we will drop ship the product to the consumer. So the consumer won't pick the product up physically from their dealer; they will they'll receive a courier package at at their house or at the, at their work, whichever address they want it shipped to. Um, so we'd, we 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 consider that dropship to the consumer. And so the customer that receives that package wouldn't know. It was from you guys. Sure, they have no. They they can't very easily tell that we are the shipper of the goods. It, it the goods would come with an invoice from their retailer in the parcel, and it would look like a um, it would look like a parcel from their retailer. Okay, right. So how it works then is that me, I can set up a website with your products loaded into them, um, and then sell your products. And then what you will do is then deliver those products directly to my consumers that would never know you were delivering them. Is that how it works? Uh, yeah. If you if you set up a website selling all our products and then you know, but you have no inventory and you want us to deliver them direct to your consumer, yeah. That that in theory, yeah, we we would prefer to use the dropship service to support dealers who already have a you know, a reasonable selection of our product. We just don't expect dealers to ever be able to stock everything. I mean, we've got over 12,000 product lines or individual SKUs. And uh, the bike and, you know, the the range of products in the bike industry has has uh, exploded. The number of segments is fragmenting all the time. It's just not reasonable to expect a single retailer to have everything in stock all the time. So we, we use a dropship program really to support dealers who are already supporting us. Um, if it was a, if you set up a website and you didn't want to carry any of our stock, well, I could do that. <laughs> I don't really need you to do that. Okay, so let's talk China. So everybody kind of knows that 
you can buy stuff online from China directly. It'll take a while, quite, quite a long time actually, usually four weeks. Um, and I've actually seen friends uh, and people online are actually buying bike products from China. I mean, it's a fraction of the price of what retail is for similar kind of products. Um, do you see that as a kind of like a long-term threat to what you're doing? Uh, I wouldn't call it a big threat at the moment, but it is certainly another channel um, that uh, yeah, essentially cuts us out of the, the loop. Um, it's, it's not quite as simple as you suggest because many of the brand, many of the products you get on Alibaba are largely unbranded products. So there'd be a, a factory in China making, say, carbon fiber rims, which is probably a common one. Um, there's there's no backup, there's no warranty, there's no after sales support. So if it's a simple product and you don't need the brand name and you somehow trust the vendor. Um, then sure, you can buy from there. But we've found, we've found a number of counterfeit products come in that way as well. And, you know, one of the products that is quite of alarming, uh, for example, is a carbon handlebar. It was branded with one of the brands that we uh, we represent. And the consumer was having trouble fitting it to their bike or the bike shop that they took it to was having trouble fitting it to the bike. And they called us up saying this product was uh, looked like it was faulty. And uh, we were kind of fascinated by it because it didn't sound normal. Once we actually got the product in our hands, we could tell immediately it was a fake. And we could also see that the, uh, the manufacturing quality was very low. And I would strongly suggest that the person, if they did use that bar, would one day have the thing snap, probably at 60 or 80 k's an hour going down a hill. And so, you know, there is, there is a leap of faith that you have you take with these people. Um, so, yes, uh, many people are prepared to do that. Price can be an advantage. Um, there are some pitfalls, and I'm not sure whether those will ever be solved by AliExpress. But the answer is, yeah, overall, sure, they're taking some part of the business. Um, but consumers have no, no recourse or backup or anything like that so it's not they're never going to take over the whole business i don't believe because um of the reasons i mentioned yeah okay so we're going to change topic and we're going to jump into life from alice's perspective so you've been around for a while um how long have you been in the, the business here in wales well i started working here in 1993 um, i was working as a sales rep for, uh, for about five six years um before i moved into a management position in the company. So, yeah, since then. Okay, that's quite a while. Been around a while. Okay, um, so, you know, you must have seen a lot of businesses come and go. Um, some of them stick around, some of them be successful, some of them fail. Um, so what are, what has been the, you know, the big things that have kind of changed in the industry for you? The, the answer is, yeah, there's been a lot of change. Um, obviously, personalities come and go. Um, you know, people... People retire, they sell their businesses, etc. But that's not the real change. The change has really been the the face of our customer. When I first started, every customer was a bricks and mortar bike shop. They opened, you know, five, six, maybe even seven days a week, occasionally. And uh, then the internet really uh, came on, and that that probably started to drive a lot of the changes um, in terms of. Uh, consumer buying patterns and I don't think the bike industry is alone in that one of course you know Amazon evolved into what it is today and uh, 
So online retailing is 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 probably the single biggest change, and that has allowed all manner of things to happen. You mentioned offshore websites like CRC and Wiggle. Um, there's also uh, players in New Zealand in in the online space as well. Um, some of them have some substantial businesses now. Also, we're seeing a lot of a lot of our customers nowadays are not high street bike shops in a bricks and mortar sense in terms of some of them are more a mechanical workshop they may take an industrial premise some even work out of a out of their garage or they're under their house um we never had that sort of thing in the past people always had a workshop within a bike shop so that that's becoming a much bigger part of the industry there's a large number of people whose business is really workshop focused and it's outside of a bricks and mortar store, which to us is a big, big, big change. Also, uh, rental bike operations, um, a lot of that sort of thing is tied, especially in New Zealand, to tourism. Um, you see Queenstown, there are people renting bikes to ride on the gondola, to go ride rail trails, um, even go heli biking. Um, so, yeah, rental operations are a, a really big part of the business nowadays. So I find the, the workshop side of things quite interesting. So, so what is actually happening? Is there more people kind of becoming more solo and entrepreneurial about how they're developing workshops? And, and how do they typically work with people like you in the end? Yeah, we have some basic tests around who would supply. If you just want to set up fixing your bike and a couple of mates' bikes at home, we wouldn't really consider that a business. But um, most people generally have a premise, but it might be an industrial premise in an industrial area. Uh, it certainly won't be a high street retail presence. The reason for that, quite simply, is the cost of rent per square meter is just much, much less, and they simply don't need high street presence. Um, often high street presence for them might be inconvenient in terms of lack of parking and access and, and so forth. So, uh, yeah, the reason there's more workshop business than ever before is bikes are more complex. Um, suspension components are a big part of that, hydraulic brakes. Uh, there's also a lot more people who are treating cycling as, as a mainstream part of their life. So their bicycles are, are more expensive, more complicated, um, and they love them a lot. They want to spend money on them, or they need to spend money to keep them going, and that's it's their, uh, it's their outlet. So they're quite passionate about what happens with their bike, and they want it well looked after. And talking about the workshop, I know this is something that, that you've grown here as well. You have quite a big workshop downstairs uh, that we saw earlier. Yeah, we have quite a big workshop. Uh, here we uh, we only have two mechanics on at the moment, but we have up to four. Um, and it's about an 80 square meter workshop. It's We moved into this facility about three years ago. We really upgraded it at that point. Okay, so I want to ask a very, very, very specific question. What are the challenges you face as a business? Um so a, a wide-ranging question. Um, uh, you know, look, the, there's compliance with health and safety rules is always um, always one of those things that's always in the back of your mind that uh, as a business owner, um, those, those sort of things have become more uh, more detailed and, and more uh, more strenuous. Um, but look, it, it isn't. It's not a major deal for us uh, in terms of changing the way the business works but it's competitive and um, we're competing mostly with uh, other distributors selling competing brands to the bike shops in New Zealand but we're also competing with offshore retailers who are selling direct to consumers and we need to be price competitive we um, 
we that's always a really big challenge for us, you know, um, and still be able to make a margin to make a profit to pay the wages and overheads of the business. The there's always the frustration too with um, government regulations and uh, around the charging of GST uh, on imports. I always feel that we're um, the government policy over the last 20 years, well, 15 to 20 years has been pretty unfair I mean, in many ways because most people can privately import goods up to the value of New Zealand $400 and not pay GST, which is, you know, I can't sell anything that excludes GST. And if you want to walk down the road to any shop in New Zealand, if you want to purchase something for less than $400, you can't just say, hey, I'm not paying the GST. Um, and for those not familiar with what GST is, can you explain? Well, GST is a sales tax. Okay. Uh, it, it's a it's a tax that goes on top of the price of a, a, the of a product. Uh, what's the price of it? It's fifteen percent. Okay. So it's a significant proportion. Um, I don't have a problem with GST per se. I just think that everybody who's who's bringing in goods from overseas should pay GST. I mean, after all, businesses in New Zealand, whether it's us or our our retail customers. Uh, uh, what makes the economy go round? We're the ones paying taxes. We're employing people. We're renting premises. Um, we're using other companies as service providers. So, uh, yeah, we have to pay tax in New Zealand. And um, it appears that government policy has always favoured those who are offshore who are paying no tax or contributing nothing to the New Zealand economy. It's it's far from a level playing field. And that's one of the most frustrating challenges Um that I've had, and governments are lazy. They, it's not a vote catcher to change to go and charge GST on imports. No one's going to thank you for doing it. No consumer is going to thank you for doing that. But uh, realistically, governments need to do something about it. They, they talk about it a lot, but you know, there's a lot of talk about it, but nothing has happened. Okay, so jumping into the business itself, what do you measure success by? Is it like the the, the, the bottom line, the profit, the how many products you have, the satisfaction of those products, the, you know, stocking and being able to deliver on time, you know, how do you, how do you, what, I mean, it's probably all of those things, but, but, you know, is there a key thing in that? Yeah, I guess all of those things are, are measures of, that we, that we take into account. I mean, the easiest measure is simply, you know, what's your net profit, right? I mean, that's, that's a number at the bottom of a, uh, of a, of a spreadsheet that's, that's very, very quantitative. So I guess in terms of, um, Stakeholders, we have banks, I have some family who are shareholders and myself, um, I have staff, I have customers, um, all of whom have different expectations of me. And uh, yeah, all of, all of those people, are, are um, all, of, all of their expectations are something that I have to try and measure and uh, hopefully um, keep them happy. So talking of the family, I mean, this is a family-run business. Everyone's a partner or, or etc. So, what is it actually like, you know, running the business for the family? Uh, yeah, well, look, I've never been in anything other than a family business, so not hundred percent sure if I'm in a great place to answer that. But uh, look, family businesses have their challenges. You know, um, as I say, you can't choose your family. But uh, look, we've we're a long-established company. We've made it work for a long time. Um, my family are very understanding. They've grown up. Uh, surrounded by the business so they do understand it very very well and um, they have a long-term attitude to it you know they don't if if we don't have a good year they they accept that but they they, they know that good years happen as well as bad years and uh, 
I'm not sure the stock market or um, investors are quite so tolerant of those sorts of things. And so I imagine a CEO's role is a lot more challenging in trying to keep uh, keep keep those forces happy. So being a family-run business, it means you kind of go home and talk about work every day, maybe? Well, I'm the only one that works in the business. The others don't. So, yeah, often they, they're more interested in talking about it than I am. I live it every day and I... Uh, <laughs> probably probably less interested in talking about it after hours than they are. But um, yeah, look, they, they all have a genuine interest in the business. They've been around it all their lives. And, uh, you know, look, I, I think that's a compliment. Um, we do have some family discussions that go on. But generally speaking, they leave me alone. Yeah. Okay. So imagine we have a listener at home and they're thinking, how do I get into this industry doing what you're doing? Um, I mean, that wouldn't be typical because I guess most people want to make their own bike shop or coffee shop or that kind of thing. But say, for example, someone's really into the economics of the bike industry. What advice would you give them to get into this type of business? Um, I guess uh, in my case, you get born into it. But um, if you, um, all jokes aside though, I mean, if you, if uh, companies are starting up all the time and generally speaking, they start off with one or two, they get an agency for effectively a, a a great brand and they you need quite a bit of money or capital behind you because you've obviously got to buy the product and you've got to set up a business infrastructure before your revenues really start to compensate you for that so um, you've got to start with some money you've also got to start with a really good agency and then you've got to get out and start selling it um, and usually as companies grow they add on extra brand as they get bigger they can add on more and more brands uh, as they grow okay so moving on to the guy that has or girl that has opened their own bike shop running their own bike shop and they want to kind of grow it expand it do something different um what kind of advice would you give those people i think the probably the best thing is know your market know exactly who your target market is i mean don't think you can open your doors and wait and see who walks in that's not a recipe for success um the most successful stores i've seen have always opened up with a real a really strong plan about who their customer will be and how they will how they will um, communicate and uh, interact with those customers. The bike trade's very uh, there are a very wide number of bicycle users, and no one shop can cater to them all. For example, you know the very basics is you've got mountain bike, you've got road, you've got BMX, urban, and even within each of those categories, there's a large number of segments that uh, you certainly wouldn't normally expect one shop to be catering to all of them. So you really need to understand who who you are catering to, who who are your customers, you know? Is it a geographic thing? Is it a bike usage type of definition? Um, you know, are you setting yourselves up to be far more workshop service oriented or more retail focused? Um, and of course, how are you going to communicate with those customers? Because in uh, today's world, everybody's busy and we're all bombarded with communications from all manner of businesses that we probably would rather not be talking to. So yeah, you've, you've got to have a really good structure and plan around that. Okay, so the question I've been waiting for, what about a bike shop retailer that wants to work with people like you, a distributor, uh, and work in a, in a good relationship? What advice would you give those guys? I mean, obviously, you know, paying your bills on time is probably a good one. 
And that's always a good one, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, certainly not paying your accounts is, um, ten, tends to have the, a negative effect. But uh, again, knowing who your customers are and what you want to achieve in your business makes a big, a big, big difference. Um, if you can come to a distributor with a plan, um, they're probably a lot more likely to work with you and, and help you and try and help you transition towards the successes you're looking for. So, so just describe like tangibly what that kind of help actually means, so specifically for people looking to, to work with people like you. Um, the distribu- distributors can help with um, extended finance terms, um, with fit outs in the stores that might be, you know, um, fit outs that help display the products being supplied by that distributor. Um, uh, the sort of volumes that you, you want to buy. Um, if you are looking at really big volumes in something, then you could probably negotiate with your distributor for some better deals. Um, and obviously distributors who are importing product in bulk quantities with an absolute certainty that they're going to sell it will work to a smaller margin. So um, th- those types of things, yeah. Okay. It might also involve things like sponsoring uh you know, if the, if the store themselves is involved in any events or with athletes or um, that they think are going to help drive their business, then they may also be wanting some assistance with product in particular to, to help with those sort of people um, or those events that, that they feel will drive their retail business. So that's a, that's often a key one as well. Okay, so, so you're even advising or suggesting that Maybe going down the event and sponsorship route is uh, is a good way for for retailers to reach out to their audience. I think it depends on again on the store and what what they're working to achieve. If you're an urban focused store, that's um, you probably don't need to sponsor a bike racer. But if you uh, want to be a high end boutique road shop, you might have a you might have a team that rides in your kit, um, rides the bikes that you sell, um, that, and and at bike races there'll be helping to um, give your store some profile and and um, and they they largely become ambassadors for your business um, if you're running an event uh, that's often a great chance to interact with a large number of potential customers all in one spot you you can have all sorts of displays you can be helping with neutral technical support um, for riders on the day and you get a chance to put your best foot forward if you like in front of you know, a, a large number of people at a cycling event, hopefully where they're, they're having a great time. All right, cool. I think that kind of wraps up the whole business side of this uh, podcast. And now, living the best till probably last, I'd say, um, let's talk about me and my trip in New Zealand at the moment. So, you know, I'm still here. Um, still got plenty of time in New Zealand to go and explore. Um, any places you think I should go and visit and explore? New Zealand's a a surprisingly big place with a lot of there's a lot of uh, there's a lot going on in cycling in all kinds of corners of the country and uh, I haven't been to all of them by any stretch but a lot of them are all pretty uh, pretty interesting um, uh, there's quite a long list actually mate I, I Queenstown is, is probably the center of um, cycle tourism in terms of um, action gravity driven stuff and also a lot of um, you know, things like the Otago Rail Trail and, and various other trails that have been in, put in around that area. I think you'd really enjoy riding some of that stuff. It's a unique scenery. Um, the There's 12 or 13 uh, cycle trails that have been put in around the country um, under the previous government. The 
one up north, the Twin Coast Trail. It's about 85 k's from Hokianga through to the Bay of Islands. I loved that one. I thought that was really cool. Um, there's the Timber Trail on the Central North Island. There's the Old Ghost Road. Um, yeah, the Alps to Ocean Trail. I think all of those would be pretty good places to hit. Um, Wellington's a great place too. There's a lot of cycling culture there as well. Okay, cool. I'll probably do all of those things. Um, and I'm interested in you mentioning Christchurch because not many people really kind of bring up Christchurch uh, as a place to really go and visit, especially around cycling. Yeah, well, funny, cyc- the cycling culture in Christchurch is probably uh, is always it's one of the oldest urban cycling cultures in the country, really. I mean, it's always traditionally been stronger than Auckland or Wellington. Um, geographically, it helps that it's flat, uh, and the, the, there's always been a more of a culture of, of riding bikes for utilitarian purposes there. But... That's probably not what you want to go and see. You probably want to go and see things like the Christchurch Adventure Park, which is a chairlift access park just in the Port Hills, just, you know, 20 minutes out of town. Um, and also, if you can get into the uh, Craigieburn Ranges, which is a probably hour and a half, two hours drive out of Christchurch into the Southern Alps, there's some fantastic mountain biking in there. Okay, and finally, any advice for this big 20,000 kilometre ride I'm going to be doing back home next year? Uh, anything at all? because I have nothing to go on. Yeah, behave yourself. <laughs> um, I've never really done uh, much cycle touring on, on like that at all, so I, I don't feel super qualified to um, to comment. I'm pretty jealous, though. I do like the look of it. It sounds, sounds brilliant. So that was episode two, Pedaling Podcast completed. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for listening. I hope you found that useful. It was really useful to me to actually ask those questions to someone in that position. I've never really understood that part of the industry. So I hope you found it as useful as I did. Next week, I'm talking to Liam Fryery, who's the owner and publisher of New Zealand Mountain Biker and New Zealand Cycling Journal. Uh, the two magazines that he independently runs, that his thing, um, which is quite... A rare thing in the industry of publishing if you could share me some love as well via the whole reviews the sharing the liking the etc that'd be really great it'd be great for me to sort of grow this show and let everyone know what i'm up to and also follow me on instagram as well if you're interested in my kind of journey live seeing what's going on that's peddling podcast on instagram as i'll be traveling down to uh, wellington uh, next week so follow that if you're interested and uh, see you next week